Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Today's episode of Home Study is a brand new kind of show. You see, back in August, we released a show that was a story show. It was a tale of us going fishing and being really bad fishermen and not catching anything. But it was all about stories. There was no thumbs up, thumbs down, no calculations, just telling fun stories. And it got great response. We got a lot of mail back from that episode. People telling us they enjoyed the storytelling. Uh, They enjoyed following us on that trip. So we decided with the popularity of that show that maybe we needed a new kind of episode. No calculators, no teaching, just sitting like we're sitting by a campfire enjoying a story. So I'm really excited to finally present to you the Homesteady Campfire. Enjoy. They'd made it across most of the United States on bicycle. And now John and his wife wanted to try something new. and I are traveling across the country by bicycle and talking about food, agriculture, craft beer along the way. We've gone east to west. We've gone north to south. We've dipped into Canada. And now we're trying to figure out how we're going to get into Mexico. We want to see what Mexican farm life is like. You know, it's in the news a lot about... You know, all of our lettuce is coming from Mexico. Mexico was in the news for something else at that time as well. Beheadings. There was a lot of problems with drug cartels and fighting. And people were getting their head chopped off left and right. But that doesn't dissuade John and Kate. Yeah, John and Kate, I know. It got me too as I was saying it. So they try to find somebody that they can hook up with to get into Mexico. We get contacted via Facebook or email, I forget exactly what. His name's Steven, and he's like, I have 2,000 acres in California and 4,000 acres in Mexico. I grow conventional crops, but I would love to show you this side of how farming So before they leave, they got a friend who works for the police department. police department, doing global positioning software stuff. (laughs) So they give him all this guy's information, you know, just in case. Here's all the cell phone numbers, contact info. Contact info. The destinations he says he's bringing us to. GPS coordinates. So did he put a tracker? You'll be able to find (laughs) us. I was like, here's my GPS number. (laughs) We're not going to tell our parents that we're doing this because we don't want them to worry. So they arranged to meet Steven. And he shows up, big truck. And a huge white pickup shows up. In the back of the white pickup is a a German Shepherd dog. Looks mean. German Shepherds look mean. I don't care if you have the nicest German Shepherd in the world. Yeah, they have a reputation. 
<laughs> and out of the truck comes a balding, seemingly seven foot guy. He was like six foot four. But I'm 5'10, so everybody over 5'10 That's seems giant tall to me. south of the border. He's a big dude. <laughs> and, you know, uh, jeans, you know, plaid shirt, a little bit straight laced, but. You know, it doesn't look like a hooligan. The truck wasn't in terrible condition, and he wasn't like, hey, how you doing? You all look pretty. (laughs) So we get in, we shake hands. I sit down, and Kate gets in the back of the truck that's a, you know, quad cab. She gets in the back of the truck. I sit down in the front, and my leg hits something, and it's a machete. (laughs) Why I wasn't like, you know what? I don't know. We're going to (laughs) go. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, we're going to call this off. <laughs> so they're alone with a stranger headed to a foreign country. This big guy that they don't know. Mean looking dog in the back and a machete by his side. What in the world are they thinking? That's the thing about starting an adventure, doing something new, exploring a brave new world. Sometimes it's a crazy looking decision. The kind that you're afraid to tell your parents you're doing. So today, on the Homesteady Campfire, we're talking about pioneers. People who looked ahead, wanted something different, wanted an adventure, even when it seemed like maybe not the best idea. And what happens to them? So, cozy up by the fire. We got some great stories to tell. For as long as there have been people, there have been stories. And wherever you find a campfire, you'll find people telling them. Every year we would take a camping trip as a family. Campfire smell. It's like an instant signal. It brings everybody together, telling stories. And and at the end of morning breakfast, he'd take that big cast iron skillet full of sizzling bacon (laughs) grease. Some dude with a guitar shows up. Stories, sharing laughter and... You know, sharing a marshmallow. Roasting marshmallows. 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 There'll be this giant inferno. First thing in the morning, you know, we're all going to just be laughing (laughs) and enjoying each other's time. And, you know, it makes me think of, like, my dad's laugh. Get to see a a different side of life. That's why I love campfires. That's why I love campfires. (laughs) That's why I love campfires. You ready for a story? It's the Homesteady Campfire. So they're headed into Mexico with a total stranger. Scary looking dog, machete, the works. They're driving down the road, a little bit of small talk. And then Stephen, the truck driver, says he's got to pull over. We're, we get out in, you know, away from San Diego proper out into the, the desert. and There's nothing around. And he's like, we got to stop. We got to stop. That's what the guy says. The, the guy that John doesn't know, who's got a machete by his side, nobody knows where John and Kate are. They're over the border. They got a location of where they're headed, but they're in the middle of nowhere. And this big guy's like, we got to pull over. Yeah, what would you do? We got to stop because I, I forget. I, the dog's name is Max. He's like, Max has to go potty. <laughs> what guy is going to kill you is like, oh, my puppy has to go potty. You know? <laughs> So we're like, it's okay. <laughs> I was like, this dude's all right. I'm a decent <laughs> judge of character at this point. The dog in the back is because he has a premium on ransom insurance. The dog only speaks check and responds to check commands and will kill you if he speaks the right check word. But that's because he's going into Mexico routinely and he gets a better insurance premium if he has this dog. So Max goes pee and then the fun begins. They go back to Stephen's farms. They tour the facilities. 
saw them growing acres and acres of iceberg lettuce, went and saw these massive greenhouses that he was putting up to do, went out to dinner before a certain time of day. And then we're leaving the night and we're like, this is great. Mexico's not that bad. You know, the news, you know, what's up with the news? And yeah, and we we left Mexico and drove back home and it all worked out fine. We took that chance. We had that gamble. I got into a truck with a stranger with a dog named Max who only spoke Czech and my leg hit a machete and we came out the other side and we still stay in touch with Steven today. <laughs> Did you learn any Czech words not to say? <laughs> I, don't I, say goodbye in check yeah, now remember I john figured, and his wife I, didn't I just jump the border into mexico one day out of the blue they had been on a trip a long trip across the country riding bicycles this trip was a huge change see john's like me he's a guy born in connecticut so john raised in suburbia from connecticut didn't grow up on a farm kind of had a life change started a farm up in new milford john why don't you take it away first tell us a little background about yourself Sure. Uh, do you want a? Do you want the long road, and then you get edited out? Or, yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's go the long. Keep road. it more succinct. So I grew up in Naugatuck, Connecticut, right next to Waterbury, and had a small backyard. Didn't grow anything. You know, if I needed something, you go to the store and get it. We made mashed potatoes from the flakes out of a box, and you know, craft macaroni and cheese, and the high C juice boxes. What became our life, and that was fine because it was convenient. But there was always this undercurrent of like my mom, even though we would have Kraft macaroni and cheese, then on her day off, she would spend eight hours making tomato sauce from tomatoes from my grandfather's garden. And she would make it from scratch, free, freeze it in quart containers. And that would be our tomato sauce for the next month. So there was something there, you know, some spark. So John grows up and he heads off to college. He goes to school for design and technical theater with concentration in scenic design. That is the long way to say that I was a stagehand, uh, mostly doing lighting. After I graduated, on a hope and a prayer, I moved to New York City just because a couple guys said, yeah, if you move, I'll give you work. I got into New York City. I, I got a job interview offer for the Howard Stern Show as the lighting guy, the house lighting technician. And, you know, I'm just out of college, um, early 20s, and I, there's no way I'm going to get this job. I almost didn't go to the interview, and I was back and forth, and Kate's like, just go. You never know. So I went, did the interview, and, and I'm leaving thinking like, all right, that was a fun exercise, but whatever. And the lighting designer, Dave, when we're walking out, he's like, I want to offer you the job. And I'm like, say what? <laughs> when you get Stern hired show. to the Stern Show, there's a <laughs> little bit of celebration. You know? <laughs> so I get into the Stern Show, uh, keep my head down. I'm not a in front of the camera type of guy and just, you know, try to do my job and do my job well. So now John's working at the Stern Show. It's a great job and he learns a lot, but he does find that there's something missing. Despite the fun of being involved with the show, it is just a desk job. It was still a desk job. You know, I wasn't in the studio with the, all the shenanigans. I would come in, sit at my desk, and go home and sit at my desk and then go to sleep. And it was too sedentary. And I found after a few years of that, there was something missing. I felt that, that calling, that nagging, that there was you know, something a little bit better. So there's this vacuum appearing in John's life. Enter guy with bicycle. And the guy who worked next to me had an extra bike that's perfect for city commuting. So he sold me the bike. We got in a, I got into bike culture big time. 
and a whole new world opened to me where I started to do distance. I would commute nine and a half miles to and from work. So, you know, that's what, 19 miles a day. When I went to the studio, <clears throat> I would get home from that, switch bikes and go over the George Washington Bridge and bike in New Jersey. And there'd be days I'd log 100 miles just because it was fun. And I was thin and I had a lot of breakfast burritos to work off. So fast forward, I got into competitive bicycle racing where we would bike the six or seven mile loop around Central Park. I would do bike races in New Jersey and got into that culture of biking as more of a hobby, but you know, definitely competing with other guys in a race and really got into how much my bike weighs, what I was eating, how much I was training. I like to bike. Am I ready to be a professional cyclist? Well, I want to ask you a few questions. Have you ever considered the weight of your skeleton? But you would get into the details of exactly what your body type was, what your skeleton was, and how that fit onto this machine that you've purchased, this bicycle. Do you ever use sensors to learn how your knees move? I would take my bike and myself and get a professional fit where they would hook up sensors to you and those sensors would show exactly how your knees moved, how you fit on the bike, and you would get a professional fit to the bike. So it's like getting a custom suit made for yourself, but you're getting this bike custom built for you or custom adjusted to best suit your body type and what your skill level is You at. like the idea of jumping out of your car wearing only underwear. You're never more aware of your body and your capabilities and what you're doing than when you're covered in skin tight spandex on a tiny piece of carbon fiber going 40 miles an hour. <laughs> it's imagine, you know, crashing from that, which happened to me a few times. Imagine jumping out of your car in your underwear. <laughs> yeah, it's it's awful. So who's ready to sign up for cycle camp? Tying back to sitting at my desk and being a, having a sedentary lifestyle became very aware of like humans were made to move. Like I'm on a bike and this brings me joy versus sitting at a desk and getting chunky. <laughs> uh, you know, nothing against that. You know, if that's anybody's lifestyle, I don't want to offend, but at the same time uh, I knew that being fit and being tied to food was an area that I wanted to uh, research and explore further. So John begins competing. Now, bike races are categorized by the number, kind of like tornadoes, uh, but it works its way up, not down. So category five, unlike the F5, is actually your starting point, and then you work your way up all the way to one, and then you can go pro. So that was for all you Twister fans out there. And then if you're phenomenally good and willing to make huge sacrifices, you go pro. Uh, I wasn't willing to do any of that, so I was a category four, above entry level, Still really competitive, but I had no desires to conquer the world. I liked riding my bike. So now John's at a crossroads. He knows what he likes. He likes riding his bike. He knows what he doesn't like. Sitting at a desk, getting chunky. Tough decision. I wanted to get away from this desk job um, where I was working, but I didn't know. I didn't know what the future would hold. And it would be dumb to leave such a fantastic job. So I figured I would ride it out. I was in the midst of a five-year contract. John's in a five-year contract with the Stern Show, and it's coming up for renewal. Alongside him, he sees others whose contracts are up for renewal, and they're getting stressed, and they're getting ulcers, and they're worrying about their life. 
John realizes he doesn't want to be there. He doesn't want someone else to have this kind of control and this kind of sway over his entire life. So he starts to develop a bit of a plan B. So as I got into cycling, as I got into food, and as I saw my future being unemployed and somebody else taking charge of my finances, my career goals, my career path, I needed a way out. So I created this crazy idea to sell all my stuff, get rid of my worldly possessions, invest it in a traveling bike, and trade in the race wheels for the long trail wheels. I started to design this bike, tri- bike ride, which originally was supposed to go around the world, and that was a crazy enough idea because if this didn't, if you know, if the, the job renewed, I wanted to go anyways because I needed the change. And if I was just going to ride my bike to my mom's house, you know, who cares? If I commit to riding my bike around the world, even if I don't do it, it's still the idea, the catalyst that I needed to bring about that change that I have in life or that I needed, that I, I thought I needed in life. So you were going to bike around the world. How do you... Uh... Like it's the dumb questions. Like, how do you cross the ocean on the bike? <laughs> I know you go on a boat, or yeah. do you? What What were you planning? I uh, my my answer was always that we would overinflate our tires. There you go, and uh, just, <laughs> just like good, on the beach, get a good run and start. <laughs> you know? uh, truth is, my bike fully loaded was 135 pounds, so that wasn't going to work out. I had a, in case any of you science followers <laughs> yeah. were doubting. <laughs> I uh, I had a number of different ways, and I had this all figured out. I had itineraries for around the world flights. I knew the rainy season and the optimal travel season in most of the countries in the world. I could tell you the capitals, the paths. John where the is the kind of were. guy who gets obsessive about things. So when he describes making this plan, I picture that scene from Beautiful Mind where they see his room and there's lines and papers torn and things hanging from the ceiling and strings stretched from one end to the other. Yeah, he got into it deep. Geography became my world. It was a combination of boats, planes. I had contacted cruise lines about giving inspirational talks about our bike trip around the world and letting go of your desk job in order to give up that for a life of freedom in exchange for passage to another area. And because I came from an entertainment background, I also applied for a few jobs as a, you know, one time, Hey, I'll be an inspirational speaker and I'll run the lights for the show. And all I want is passage. So you save money. I get the trip. Everybody's happy. Mr. Cruise ship director. I'm a motivational guy and I went to school for lighting. I can give you both. Was that a good sell? Uh, I got mild response from that. (laughs) Any idea that I could come up with I probably did come up with. That's fantastic. <laughs> I'm like loving that. John is nothing if not a very good marketer. <laughs> all right. So you're bargaining chips on boats and all these sort of things. At this point, I've created the Food Cyclist website. I became known as The Food Cyclist because not only was I leaving my job to bike around the world to promote fitness and healthy, active lifestyles, I was biking from farm to farm across the United States learning about slow food. And I was tying nutrition into fitness and bringing it all into the, you know one picture under the Food Cyclist brand. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. 
If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. So John's preparing for this trip. News is spreading, and he realizes he's going to need some place to stay along the way. How is he going to figure that out? It turns out the Stern Show helped him so out on this bike one. trip around the world. Howard thought it was shenanigans and brought me on air. I was on air two different times, one for 45 minutes, one for another 30 minutes. So on one of the most popular stations on Sirius from one of from arguably the most popular disc jockey, I got, you know, an hour and 15 minutes of his time for him to tell me I'm an idiot. And that created two polarized audiences, one on Howard's side where they thought I was an idiot. And the other one said, Howard's an idiot. You're amazing. Go ahead and do it. We're behind you. And it was that supportive audience combined with the farms and the breweries that gave Kate and I inexpensive housing across the country. So while we were unemployed following a dream and a bunch of dumb kids, we met some of the most amazing people and most generous, open, amazing, incredible people across the country, all under the premise of, Hey man, let's do a good thing. You know? So the trip in a nutshell, we left from New York city. We went from East to West across the United States, pretty much through the middle until we hit Colorado. Then we went up to Seattle with a brief dip into British Columbia. So we hit Canada. And then we went down the East Coast all the way to San Diego with a very brief dip into Mexico. Uh, <laughs> so we went the entirety from coast to coast, from you know east to west, from north to south, over a period of 5,500 miles, and it took us just under a year to do it. It's easy to get caught up in this story and let that one slip by. They spent an entire year biking across the whole United States. They made it from one end to the other. And then top to bottom. That's pretty cool. So on the road a while, stayed with every manner of person along the way, rich to poor, stayed in every living situation along the way, from mansions to breweries to, you know, just the average working class, extra spare bedroom. We've camped out in people's backyards. There was even one night where we slept in a tree fort. Uh, not the most comfortable and terrible when you had to wake up in the middle of the night and go to the bathroom because uh, as cyclists, you try to rehydrate a lot. Uh, navigating a tree fort ladder in the middle of the night in the middle of Oregon while it's raining, not great. But we slept and ate and experienced everywhere. Uh, we got sick along the way. We got mugged in Washington State. Not bad, but uh, you know, a little bit of property damage. The police were right there when it happened. Uh, some redneck woman attacked us because she didn't like that we were on the side of the road. <clears throat> so she did some damage to the bikes. But The she... mug story sounded cooler until <clears throat> it was a woman. <laughs> you know, if, if you're going to pick a fight, pick one that you can win. Right, Austin. all right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a violent guy. I go for speed. I run the opposite direction. <laughs> but if you're going to fight, pick the old lady. <laughs> uh, this is coming from the cyclist, the food cyclist. <laughs> Yeah. Well, her her son was there and he, at first he was like yeah yeah and then he was like oh no mom the cops are here <laughs> and then you're like oh that's your mom what are you guys doing so had an, a, an amazing journey 5500 miles we climbed I think it was 7 or 8 mountain ranges our highest being about 14,000 feet over the Rockies 
uh, 12,000 feet, although the highest peak we went up to was 14,000. Uh, hard to breathe up there. <laughs> and experienced deserts, uh, torrential downpours, snow in the middle of the summer, um, you know, coastal life, the steepest hill you've ever seen in your entire life, the longest, most gradual, beautiful downhill for 80 miles coming from uh, Montana into Idaho, the panhandle of Idaho. One of the best days we had, we rode 110 miles. It was also our longest day of the trip. And we went from Montana into the panhandle of Idaho and almost crossed Idaho in one day. And we were staying in this house. We had never met this person before. There's an online website for people and who have been bike touring and are bike touring called Warm Showers. And now it's the worst name for a website because you can imagine some, you know, some things might come up if you're Googling warm showers, but it's a good network of people who are offering up a place to go camping, a spare bedroom, a spare trailer, have a warm shower, have a bite to eat and hang out. It's a wonderful network. So it was a warm showers house we had never been to before. She wasn't actually going to be there. She had a hide a key. And uh, you'll, you'll see why I'm giving you all this detail in just a minute. <laughs> So that was our destination, 110 miles away. We started eight miles vertical, and then it was downhill out of a mountain range for the rest of the day, cruising 30 miles an hour without pedaling, just cruising, beautiful landscape. We had gone to a bike shop the day before and gotten these care packages where it was a, a water bottle full of all this, like, goo packs. And mm, so we're, we're part of the way. Yeah, right? Sounds nutritious. <laughs> Biking across the country snack, for small right? farms. <laughs> and you're eating goo on the bike. <laughs> so, yeah, keep goo in mind. <laughs> so we get, you know, 80 miles in. Or it was a 110-mile day. We got 60 miles in. <clears throat> 50 miles to go. We pull out these packages and we're like, oh, we'll stop for a snack. I slam down this goo pack and Kate's like, I'm a little tentative because we're, you know, would be farmers. Let me read this. Oh, you know, the expiration date is from three years ago. Oh. Yeah. So I'm like, we need to go. <laughs> we need to finish this day just in case. And 10 miles in, you know, 40 miles to go. <laughs> Oh no. 20 miles later, 20 miles to go. I'm on the side of the road off my bike, <laughs> writhing in pain with stomach cramps in the middle of Nowheresville, Idaho, without a bathroom or at times even a bush <laughs> anywhere. And I'm like, you know, we just got to go 20 more miles. It flattens out. It got a little bit of rolling uphill, downhill. And Kate's like, do you need to stop? And I'm like, practically in tears. And we get to this small town. Uh, we, you know, use our GPS to find this address. The Heide Key, we can't find it. <laughs> and I'm in the middle of quasi-suburban Idaho with the worst stomach pain. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like in a neighborhood? I'm in a neighborhood. <laughs> in neon green and blue spandex. With stomach with with a stomach virus, or food food poisoning, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I won't go into detail, but at one point, uh, <laughs> I had to go behind the garage, you know, for some private alone time, and Kate's like, I don't know if we can stay here. It smells like human feces, <laughs> 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 and just terrible. I'm pale. I'm sweating. 
And uh, I wasn't the cleanest person at that point. Uh, after, after an hour of like texting my friend back in New York to sign him in in my email to figure out the details of where this hide key was because it wasn't where it was supposed to be, we find the key and I spend two days with food poisoning uh, watching Turner and Hooch on VHS in a stranger's house who I still to this day have never met. <laughs> When we started out riding our bicycles across the United States, the original idea was to ride our bikes around the world. <clears throat> it's like heading west for the first time. John and Kate were headed by bicycle west across the United States, following the sunset, seeing what would happen, you know, the next day and that day after. We originally were going to go around the world, had plans, had itineraries, hadn't bought any plane tickets because we had no time frame. We had a bunch of money saved, and it got time to get to California. And we were looking at spending a lot, an inordinate amount of time abroad, undefined. And that was a little scary, and we were a little homesick. They'd come so far. They'd done the entire country plus. But now John and Kate are thinking that maybe the whole world is too much right now. Maybe it's not what they want. And at the same time, you can tell John's a little sad about this. I mean, the guy quit his job. He went on air and argued with Howard Stern about whether or not it was a good idea. Talk about putting your money where your mouth is. And now they're thinking of stopping short. Stopping short of the world. At this point, John has a conversation. One of the most you know, popular blogs in that demographic, that space, that area, AlistairHumphreys.com. The dude's amazing. I mean, he ran seven back-to-back -back marathons across the Sahara. So Alistair said to me when I was going to cut it short and just go across the United States and not around the world, he said, going around the world, biking around the world is not about biking around the world. It's about taking a chance and changing your life. It doesn't matter where you end up as long as you find what you're looking for. Kate and I decided when we were on the West Coast, hey, the trip it will always be there. The bikes aren't going anywhere. We have the equipment. Let's go home for a while, reassess, earn a little bit more money because it's hard being homeless. <laughs> so you went into farming. <laughs> yeah. right. Probably the, the most profitable day. venture you could go into. <laughs> we went into farming and agriculture, you know. <laughs> if people haven't figured it out in 10,000 years, I don't know if we're going to figure it out, but we'll try. We'll try. So now John and Kate were farming. They started off as apprentices, then they had their own farm for a small time, and then John was presented with this opportunity to work and run Camps Road Farm. It's a very unique farm enterprise. The farm, which is Camps Road Farm. The goal is to combine the brewery, these three different businesses, a distillery, and the a brewery, and a farm, and have them work in unison, It's a beautiful, interlaced, interwoven business model. You don't see this very often probably because it's so difficult to set up and so intertwined. The farm grows hops that we use in beer that then the spent grain, the spent hops get composted or fed back to animals. We grow apples that go to the distillery. <clears throat> we have pigs, we have ducks, we have chickens, we have vegetables, we have wild forage stuff. We have all these different operations on farm and this complete complicated web Complicated web is an understatement. What John's trying to do here, he's growing grass, turning it into chicken and turning it into pork, taking the manure from that, 
using that to feed grains that they grow and then turn into beer and spirits, and then taking the spent grains and feeding that and turning that back into pork. It's a really intricate cycle. It takes timing and planning, and they're doing it all themselves. From my point of view, as a nearby homesteader, having a hard enough time just raising chickens to feed my family, it looks scary. But John didn't see scary. John saw an opportunity. I saw the chance in the food cycle in Camps Road Farm to do something huge. We could find a way to tie in these different craft businesses, craft-based businesses of beer, spirits, and farming into an example, a whole system sustainable example for other people and a model for them to follow. Managing that diversity is very, very difficult, but I've always been open to a challenge. John and the guys at Camps Road Farm are doing something very difficult. They're trying to create a real sustainable food system, a food cycle, and they want to leave a model for other people to follow, really help grow slow food. They're still in the planning stages of this trip. They're not sure where it's going to take them. And in 10 years, the whole plan might look a lot different. But if there's one thing John's learned, it's not about sticking to the plan. In the words of Alistair Humphreys, it's about... It's about taking a chance and changing your life. It doesn't matter where you end up as long as you find what you're looking for. So everyone, that was a story uh, brought to us by John Siskovich about his uh, about his trip. We're sitting here in the studio right now, and he's got an awesome project that I wanted to make sure you all heard about. So for 2015, every single month, starting in February, I'm going to share the production and finance records from the farm. Sounds like a boring topic, but it's not. It's going to be really <laughs> freaking awesome. Money is a tool. If you're a homesteader or if you're a farmer, you're buying into a lifestyle totally. and you want to keep going. In order to keep going, you have to support that lifestyle. Yeah. I'll be publishing reports every single month on what exactly I've done that month and how profitable or viable the different areas of the farm are. A little dry topic, but we're going to add in a lot of fun as we go. What John's doing here and seven other farmers, and we might join the ranks, we're thinking about it. It's a huge, uh, this is a huge resource. I know Homesteady listeners are going to love it because they they already like the breakdown of what we do, the thumbs up, the thumbs down. And uh, so, uh, I'll send Accountant Mike over to look at the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Totally inviting inviting Accountant Mike if he wants to become nice. part of this. And maybe the accountant guy who checks the books or is a part of the project. Yeah. Uh, always happy to have more hands on board. Awesome. It'll be farmfinancechallenge.com. To find me on the web, I'm just about everywhere, but the two places that you'll find me most is at my farm website, campsroadfarm.com, and my farm marketing website where I talk about how I'm farming and what I'm using to be successful and find success in life through farmmarketingsolutions.com. Awesome. Uh, John also has a podcast. I don't know if you mentioned it there, John. Um, John has a great podcast. If you don't listen to it already... Probably a lot of you do. It's the Growing Farms podcast, and the easy link to that page on the farm marketing site is growingfarmspodcast.com. So go check out that, especially for you listeners who have a business or want to start a farm business. 
we found his podcast is an incredible resource. He interviews a ton of different farmers. There's all kinds of guerrilla marketing strategies that they go through. QR codes. Because as farmers, we don't have any money. Right. Yeah. Spend on no money spent. All, uh, all interesting stuff. It's really good. Check it out. John, thanks so much, man. Great story. And uh, we'll definitely have you back on the show. It was an absolute pleasure, man. Right. Thanks. Cool. We're going to go outside and tour. I'm going to go outside and tour the, uh, the brewery now. So... Uh, So now it's time for the special announcement. Yes. We uh, Should we cue that Super synth music? Spe- Do we have synth music? Oh, I'll put it in post. Is it like angelic synth music? Oh. Since we started homesteading, we've noticed we've been getting awesome response from you guys, our listeners. Emails. Love your show. Tweets. Reviews. Writing messages on rocks and throwing them through our window. <laughs> we love those. Thank Great. you so much. <laughs> The response has always been, we love the show. We want more. More. We want more Homesteady. So I got an idea. What's your idea? A membership program. The Homesteady Pioneers. All right. You like the sound of that? Sure. (laughs) Kind of sounds like a really weird bluegrass band. We named it after this episode, so we're stuck with it now. Oh, okay. The serious homesteader can become a member of this show. Why what? Why would I do that? If I'm a serious homesteader, why? You don't have to do it. You are a part of the show. Oh. Let's say that I am a third person who is listening to this. Why would I bother to do this? All right. To get people to sign up to become a member, Uh we are promising them more homesteady. So more of what? Just like more episodes or? Here's the thing. Do they get signed pictures? So right out of the gate, you're going to get more podcasts. You're going to get more in-depth shows. If you're a serious homesteader... You don't need to be convinced to do these things. You just want to learn more in-depth knowledge. Yeah. We're going to have that. The Homesteady Pioneers, the people who forge ahead to support this movement, are going to get all these bonus episodes. So, Accountant Mike, you think people are going to do this? I don't know, man. I mean, my thumb started all the way down, and I think it's crept up to like... Mid-zone? It's like mid-zone right now. I don't know. We'll see. Let's do the numbers Sell here. Me on Accountant it, Mike wants to thumbs up or thumbs down this idea. All right. So... What's this thing going to cost me? Dude, it's going to be five bucks a month. For the initial investors, the initial it's five buyer, bucks a month? The initial buy-in pioneers. The, right. It's going to be five bucks a month. You're buying us a Starbucks. Yeah. You're buying us our Frappuccino. Absolutely. We might be home, I might be a homesteader. I still like my uh, yeah. Venti Moco Frappuccino. Can you homestead yourself an espresso machine? I don't think so. <laughs> Well, maybe you could. Is that a verb? Can you homestead a... uh... Yeah, that it is now. (laughs) Can you homestead me up some... Can you homestead me up a frappuccino at this minute? (laughs) If you want more homesteady, become a pioneer. We already have bonus episodes waiting for the people who become members. You go and click that button, you become a member today, you get new episodes of homesteady. Only exclusive... Exclusive episodes. To you, the pioneers. The show has expenses. Yeah. Doing the show already has every month literally cost us money. Yes. Our website is hosted with a premier hosting service, so it's fast, so it delivers. That's like, should I put dollars and cents to this? Sure. Just the hosting for the website's a hundred bucks a month. Yeah. Then we pay for the bandwidth for the show to go out, which right. has gone up every month. The show's bandwidth goes up. Right. Uh, we have um, money that we pay 
for our design work. We mm-hmm. have the money we pay for the music. The music we for the show. Right. Our right. theme music costs us money. Austin pays me a thousand dollars an hour. <laughs> Did you know that? <laughs> so I get paid zero dollars an hour. The show costs money to make. Yeah. It costs lots of time. Oh my goodness. We would love to have enough pioneers chipping in enough money each month that we could take some time off of our regular work yeah. and actually be able to really devote more of ourselves to this. That's what you pioneers are for. Yep. Let's forge ahead five bucks a month. Buy us Come on. one nice coffee a month. Come on. And uh, that's going to cover your costs for all the show. You're going to get all the future members-only episodes and anything else that you want us to create, tell us. You're going to be like a shareholder in the show. Yep. Saying, listen, I'm a part of this. I support you guys. I want to learn more about farming ostriches. That- <laughs> you can say that word right. <laughs> ostriches. Oh my God. You want to know about farming emus? <laughs> Easier to say. Yeah. We'll find somebody who farms emus. Sure. We'll interview them. There's got to be somebody out there. We're going to make this Pioneer membership awesome. We're going to make it for you. What do you think, Accountant Mike? Somebody uh, can do it? Um, a little more than middle. Sure, let's see. All right, guys. Prove to Accountant Mike that this is a thumbs up. Go to the website. This is homesteady.com. Become a pioneer. Thank you so much. And for all of you who are our fans and our listeners, even if you can't become a member, the support you've given us between the reviews you leave on iTunes, emails we get saying we love the show, the mentions on social media... Whatever way you've helped the show, the friends you've told about it, we thank you. We've grown. In the last six months, this show has grown from 200 downloads our first month to over 5,000 of you listening. On each episode. Each episode, over 5,000 people are listening. And it is growing so quickly. We thank you so much. Consider becoming a pioneer. Go to the website. Click the button. You can learn more about it. And uh, thank you. That's it. Let's get on with the show. All right. I can have some chicken. Okay. I'll have some chicken. And you made me the salad. You're I don't hungry. want the salad. Everybody loves an Italian grandmother. They feed you. They pinch your cheeks. They tell you how wonderful and beautiful you are. And I'm blessed to have two in my life. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm Leanna, I'm Accountant Mike's wife, and so as you know, I don't live on a farm. I don't have a homestead. I was born and raised in the suburbs of New York City, but my family has a history that does involve homesteading. It goes back to before they immigrated to America. I sat down with them recently because I wanted to hear their story. I wanted to hear what it was like when they first came to this country. I have to say the interview did not go as planned. What's your name? I think my jeep, I gotta get yes.
What? What's your name? You can start now. Yeah, we're going. My name is Eugenie. If you easy get gas, Siska. Uh-huh. I'll put my father's name. Okay. You had a good name. Nice so name. Uh, my father was born in Italy and my mother was born in Montreal, Canada. I heard a lot of Italian. That's why I picked it up. Io parlo buon italiano con te. Not not mal. Yeah. But when you were living in Canada, your parents spoke Italian at home? Um, my father had an accent, but he was a trans... Before we left, we were doing good in Toronto. He was a translator for the, for the red uniforms. What do you call them? Fortunately, I have another source. My name is Sal DeLeo. Until he was six years old, my stepfather, Sal, lived on a farm in Alcamo, Sicily. On the farm... They grew what my grandmother describes as all the vegetables and all the fruit. They did have some primary crops. They grew four different types of wheat, olives, and grapes. They made their own wine, their own olive oil, and their own flour. Well, as I remember as a little kid, it was like what you would picture, the the Wild West, you know, dirt streets. The streets seemed big because I was small. And um, I remember we were all living families, all within the same block, house after house. And I remember just always being able to play with my cousins. What was the house like? The house was, you walk into these big doors. They lived in a small house, surrounded by family. They had a mule that lived in the stable, which was inside their house. Inside the house? Yeah, what we call a garage here. You would enter into the house and to the left, that was the, uh, the stable. Mule came in the house with us. The center of their living area was a brick oven. They had no fridge, no running water, no electricity. It was a tight-knit community, and Sal had plenty of cousins to play with. The way it was over there is that... You lived in the, in the town, yeah, and then the outskirts was where all the farms were. So mm-hmm. then you went to your farm. So like my father would uh, pack up and go for three days, four days at a time, and stay oh. on the farm. So there her. was like a house on the farm. Well, you don't call it a house. If you see some of those pictures. It's like a garage. Okay. Where you had uh, like a makeshift eating area and you had all your did you out go to the farm yeah I used to go for the, the time of the farm and the happiest time that we had was during the harvest it was in the summer life on the farm definitely centered around the harvest it was the time they were happiest they all worked together on the farm and it was the time sal describes as one of the most joy and that's where everybody was always together because it was very important that the harvest be brought in. And so, you know, as they brought the harvest, uh, we as little kids would run around, have a lot of fun, play with each other, and and uh, think that we were helping. We were probably <laughs> doing more destruction and helping. And your mom would stay home? No, no, no. Harvest time, the women were out in the fields, the men, and 
So that's why the kids were there too. So everybody was there. So the kids, we were all together because they were out in the fields bringing in the wheat. Mm. And as they were bringing it in, the mule was tied up to a post with a rod on it so it would circle around on top of the wheat and it would smash it. So when it wasn't harvest, would grandma go to the farm too? No, grandma would be home and she would take care of us at home. She would take care of the cooking. She would go to the center of town by the rocks and so forth and do her laundry. And, and everything that you cooked had to be made home. There was no stores to go to. You made your own bread, cooked your own food. What about, so you didn't have a cow, right? So no. what about milk and, did you have chickens for eggs? I didn't have any other chickens. Ma. Grandma. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. So, yes. Everything they needed they got on their farm. They were completely self-sufficient with the exception of milk, which they got from a nearby farmer, and soap and bleach, which my grandmother would buy at the market. The, the farmer used to come with his goat oh, okay. in front of the house, and he, used to, and he used to milk the cow. In front of the house? In front of the house. My mother used to give him a pan, <laughs> and he used to milk it, and he used to get the oh, milk. Oh, my goodness. So then everything besides milk was just from your farm? Everything was farm. And, and they had a system. Like in other words, they got their haircuts, they got clothes. The barbers couldn't have property, so whoever wanted haircuts would give them some of the harvest, like yeah. the flour. So all the, bartering. It was bartering. And so what, what they would do is then take that, they would in turn take that to the baker and it would bake the bread for them for the whole year because of giving them a certain amount of poundage, yeah. they would get a certain amount of bread. So it was a bartering system. So they bartered with everybody. So grandma spent a lot of time cooking, I guess. Grandma took care of the clothes, cooking, the house. So do you remember when you were in Italy what you ate a lot? A lot of pasta. I remember as a kid, well, we had a lot of uh, the, the natural things, like uh, what you call uh, snails. The snails were right on the greens, so they used to bring in baskets of that, and they used to keep them in the house, and they used to feed them the greens, and they used to... When people talk about living a waste-free life, they're usually talking about eating the whole animal or using vegetable scraps for compost. But back in Sicily, they were even eating the pests that came in off of the crops. In listening to my stepfather's story, I can understand why he ended up becoming a butcher when he moved to New York. Clearly, the lack of meat in Sicily was something he has more than made up for in his life here. Did you have a lot of meat or not really? Not a lot of meat. Nonetheless, my father, most of it was because they went hunting. Yeah. Then he would... What would they hunt for? Rabbits. Okay. Yeah, we would have rabbits, and then it was, it was very rare when you, you know they bought meat, but they would be able to, depending on. He used to bring home some of the chickens. Oh, from the farm. From the farm, and she used, and she used to. She had to butcher them right there. Oh yeah, she in the used to butcher. Yeah, ducks. No, she used to pluck them in. Oh yeah. She used to slaughter goats and whatever. Oh, she was. 
I have a hard time reconciling the idea that my little old Italian grandmother was butchering goats and plucking chickens in her kitchen. And I have a hard time when Mike and I are at Austin and Kendra's and they're serving us Bambi on a plate. They were deeply rooted in a culture of living off the land, working with their hands, working together as part of a tight-knit community, and giving more regard to trading and bartering their goods and crops than to a bank balance or bills in a wallet. That certainly changed when they arrived in America. So what's the first thing you remember about New York? My stepfather Sal and his family came to America from Sicily by boat. on a 16-day journey by boat. A big boat was a steamliner. And everybody at that time traveled with that. And uh, I remember seeing things on a boat that I'd never seen in my life. The waves would even sometimes in the middle of the ocean, uh, we'd have to go to our cabins because the waves would come on deck. Oh, wow. And what I would remember is is that a lot of dolphins would, uh, they, they, they would just swim with the boat. They left behind their farm and their land. They came to what can only be the exact opposite. Brooklyn, New York. First thing you remember about New York? Well, it was a tremendous change. I mean, we went into, from having mules and, uh, and, and the goats coming to the house to everything being in refrigerators and uh, cooking stoves, uh, different than what we had over there. So it was a, quite a transition coming to, to America, quite a change. What, um, what was the hardest thing for you? I know you were young. The but, language. Yeah. And I had a lot of problems with it because I started hitting kids, punching them. I remember giving them bloody noses because I thought they were making fun of me because I couldn't speak the language. So you figure I'm a six-year-old just hitting another six-year-old. Yeah. But I got left back because of that. Yeah. So, yes, not being able to speak the language. Having only ever known a life of self-sufficiency, they were certainly out of place when they first arrived in New York. They tried to hold on to what they knew back in Sicily. And what Sal knew was a life of living off the land, a life of hunting and of gathering. And so he continued that. Did you miss Italy? I tried to duplicate it. It was very hard for... Uh, You'd be surprised what a young child can remember. And I got in a lot of trouble for it. Yeah. Because I'm used to, you know, being with my father when he went hunting. And so I started going hunting on the railroad tracks on Cooper Street. And I got, he took Hades out of my behind. That was a very interesting part of my life because I was able to do things. It was the first time that I was introduced to a pool hall. I mean, could you imagine a seven-year-old going in where everybody, all these guys in a smoke-filled uh, pool hall, you know, with, with the racks on top of the pool hall, with the, with the chips on it, and, and everybody was so happy to see this seven-year-old running around there that everybody was filling me up, my pockets up with change. I was <laughs> so happy going home and giving my mother all this money. Very quickly, Sal learned that the way to get by in America was by filling his pockets with cash. He did whatever he could to achieve that goal, whether it was getting his pockets filled with coins from the guys down at the pool hall 
or trading. And then to add to all of that, next door to our house, which is 141 Cooper Street, uh, there was a uh, a junkie. And when he says junkie, I'm not quite sure which variety of junkie we're talking about. What he would do is, it's it's like one of these places where you go and you bring uh, all the uh, recyclables. Like say, I couldn't afford to go buy roller skates. My parents didn't understand anything about roller. I wanted to make myself a go-kart. And so what I would do is I would collect newspapers and bottles and he would give me money. And at times I would exchange that money for things he had. But yeah. He would weigh my newspapers, he would uh, take the bottles and he would give me a certain amount of money. And with that, I would go buy my ice cream, always. And I would be able to purchase, <laughs> like say, I remember buying a pair of skates where I made my own scooter by splitting up the skates and putting on a two by four and, and was able to do that, which got me in a lot of trouble. <laughs> So that is very different because in Sicily... You the, the, the toys that I had in Sicily, what we used to do is play a game with the, the hoops from the wine barrels, the metal hoops. What we used to do is up and down the hills, we, with a stick, we would try to roll them like oh, a hula yeah. hoop. Yeah. We would try to roll them, and that was the way that we used to... Our own little toys we used to have. So You're bringing me back. Yeah. You're making me dig. That's good. You bring me back. To it's my hard childhood. to believe that my stepfather was growing up playing with these toys that I picture as part of the Oregon Trail, taking the ring from the wine barrel and trying to keep it rolling with a stick. Millions of people came to the U.S. from all across Europe. In many countries, there was a rumor that the streets in America were paved with gold and riches were easy to come by. Though they found life in America was not all they dreamed and the culture to which they were forced to acclimate did not come naturally, they adjusted in all of the ways necessary. They did what they needed to do to survive. Obviously, this was quite a change. It required an adventurous spirit. They were forced to face a new world, learn a new language, adapt to a new culture. If you ask my grandma Francesca if she would rather live in America or Sicily, she will answer without hesitation, Sicily. She'd move back tomorrow if she could. And even though she's here to stay, she has brought part of Sicily with her. She stubbornly sticks to her Sicilian language, even though she's been here for over 60 years. When you walk into her bedroom, you'll see garlic growing in pots by the window. She didn't go buy seeds or a plant to grow that. She took a clove and stuck it in the dirt. Every summer, her garden, grown zucchini, or as she says, gagoots, seem to get bigger and bigger, and almost everything she plants comes from the seeds of leftover vegetables. As I venture further and further into adulthood, I find myself more drawn to the growing trend of living off the land and eating organically. But every time I see my grandmothers, I realize I'm not braving a new world. I'm simply going back to my roots. So we've had awesome stories of pioneers today. Mm -hmm. John went across the country with his wife on a bicycle. A little insane. We talked about pioneers who left their country, the place they were born and raised, left the farm, went to the city, but kept that farm spirit, that pioneer spirit, wherever they were. Awesome stories today about pioneers. Yep. We want to remind everybody, 
Become a pioneer with homesteading. You can do it too. You can become a pioneer right now. Go to the website, thisishomesteady.com. Click on Become a Pioneer Membership. Become a member of the show. If you want more homesteading, if you're not getting enough, become a pioneer. Yeah. We know this has been a long episode. Uh, a lot of the episode, we get it. It's been a pitch. Uh, but for those of you still listening, you've listened through two pitches and great stories, but you're still there. We know you're our, our truest fans, our hardcore Homesteady fans. We want to offer a little something extra for those of you who hung on to the end of the show. A little, little gift for listening to this whole episode. $3. $3 a month. For the first 100 of you who go right now and become pioneers, going to be $3 a month. And it's going to be $3 for the lifetime of your subscription. We've already said we want to build more value into this program. So the price will go up in the future. Right now it's at $5. But for the first 100 of you listening uh, who go and become a pioneer, $3 a month. Now let me put this in perspective. Every episode we're averaging 5,000 downloads. That means... 100 people is 2% of the listeners. So this is going to go fast. You should probably pause me, right? Did you do it? Did you pause me? You should probably pause right now and go and do it. Because 2% of you will get this $3 deal. And that will be locked in for the lifetime of your membership. As long as you're a member supporting Homesteady, all the bonus episodes, all the bonus content, going to be $3 a month. For the rest of you who don't make that cut, going to be $5 for right now. We thank you so much. It really will help us do more homestead. It will help us get a regular episode out every month, and it will help us get bonus episodes out for all the members. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. Yep. Thank you for your support. Until next time. That's it. This is Austin, Accountant Mike, saying the road is rocky. Make home steady. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) All right.